important to recognize that all of us have these capacities on both these metaphorically left-brain capacities and these metaphorically right-brain capacities. Some of us have over-exercised our left brain and under-exercised our, our right brain, and so it's just a matter of working it back into shape. Learn tips on how to think more creatively with best-selling author Daniel Pink. Next on Change Nation from First30days.com. In life, most people are characterized by their strengths. If you're the numbers guy or very analytical, you're branded as a left brain type. And if you're creative and artistic, you're a right brainer. And the prevailing wisdom was that in business, the left brainers most often rule. Well, not really so, says Daniel Pink, author of A Whole New Mind, Why the Right Brainers Will Rule the Future. And his newest book, The Adventures of Johnny Bunko, The Last Career Guide You'll Ever Need. It actually turns out that those right brainers are more valuable in the corporate world than they previously thought, and they might just change the future of business. Today on Change Nation, I'm joined by Daniel to talk about how people can use their creative side to get ahead in their careers and maybe even land the job that they've always dreamed of. Daniel, it's a pleasure to welcome you. It's a pleasure to be here. So Daniel, how do I know if I'm creative or is everyone creative? I think everybody is creative. I think that being able to fashion something new, to iterate something that the world didn't know it was missing, to infuse things with uh, artistry or some kind of transcendence is part of what it means to be human. I think the, the big change here is that that sort of ability, those sorts of right brain abilities now are the abilities that are actually more valuable and more in demand in the world of business. So let's get specific. So what do you think businesses right now are looking more and more for? What are those values? What are those characteristics? Well, let's take a look at the context of business today, all right? There, there are three forces that I think are putting a premium on the, on the more right-brain abilities. That these left-brain abilities, these logical, linear, sequential, analytical, spreadsheet kind of abilities still matter. Absolutely. They are 100% necessary. And one of the things to be clear about the outset is that someone who has only these right brain abilities and none of these left brain abilities is going to be in a world of hurt. Um, but today, the big change is that the left brain abilities, which used to be enough, are insufficient. And the reason for that are these three forces. You have automation. That is, you have the, we now have the ability to automate certain kinds of white collar left brain functions, like uh, you can buy a tax preparation software rather than go to an accountant. Uh, we have Asia, the second A. Uh, automation Asia. Asia is essentially offshoring, and it's now possible to ship a lot of routine left brain, white collar work overseas. And then you also have the final factor, which is abundance, and that we have so, I mean, the, the material living standards in the U.S. and in many advanced economies is just so breathtaking, so huge, that it changes the nature of business. You have to be able to uh, create something the world didn't know it was missing, or take a utilitarian functional offering and uh, make it stand out through artistry or design or narrative or, or meaning. And so to, to answer your, your question, today in business, you have to be able to do something that is hard to offshore, hard to automate, and that meets one of those two business strategies in a world of abundance. That's why these right brain abilities are the ones that, that matter most. And, you know, for someone like me, who's a, I mean, you know, if I had to categorize myself, as you were saying at the top of the show, man, I'm totally a left brain person. Um, but if you look at the evidence of what's really going on, if you actually you apply your left brain to the facts, to the evidence, to the data of what's going on, 
in careers, in labor markets, in organizations. I don't even think it's close that the scales are tilting and that these right brain abilities are the ones that matter most. Why are you so sure that you are a left brain person? Is that because the work that you've been doing? Is that because you've been told that? Or is that for sure what you think is true? Uh, It's probably a mix of those things. I'm in my mid-40s, and I'm someone who did reasonably well in conventional school setting in the U.S., which prized those sorts of abilities. And so as someone who figured out what the reward scheme was in schools, which is basically get the right answer, deliver what the authority figure wants on time, um, I got pretty good at that. And so those were the sorts of muscles as a as a kid in school that I exercised. And so, um, you know, I, I, I was sort of left with, a, in some ways, a hyper-muscled left brain and a <laughs> flabby right brain. And so now I'm trying to work that right brain back into um, work that right brain back into shape. But um, and it also has to do in some ways with sort of how one perceives the world. And so there's a kind of self-reinforcing aspect to that, that if you are start developing your left brain abilities, you get better at them, which means you deploy them more, which means that's how you see the world. Now, now as someone who's very quantitative, as someone who loves charts and graphs, as someone who is very linear and sequential, again, I look at the facts and say, holy smokes, uh, the rules of the game are changing. And so now I'm trying on a personal level to get better at some of these right brain abilities. Now, how much of it is innate and how much of it is learned? I'm actually, I, you know, I actually think that we in many ways overstate some innate abilities and that uh, we understate the power of uh, context and practice. For someone who's listening to this, who, who agrees and knows that they are more of a left brain type, but they would like to develop more of their right brain creative ability, are there exercises? Are there things to just get involved in? How does someone get started? Sure. Uh, there are all kinds of things. And again, it's important to recognize that all of us have these capacities on both these metaphorically left brain capacities and these metaphorically right brain capacities. I mean, these are part of what it means to be human. But if you look at the, the metaphor of exercise for a moment, as I was saying before, that we sort of some of us have over-exercised our left brain and under-exercised our, our right brain, and so it's just a matter of working it back into shape. And there are all kinds of things that one can do. In the book, A Whole New Mind, I actually devote the, the final two-thirds of the book to the particular abilities that now matter most. And within those sections on the particular abilities, there are a whole set of tools and tips and exercises and things that people can do to get better at it. I mean, one of my favorites, again, since as someone who believes in, in doable and inexpensive interventions, one of the, my favorite exercises for something like design, um, design has become just fundamental in business today. I, I think that in order to be in business today, you must be design literate. I mean, if you look at what's going on at Stanford, your alma mater, Stanford now has the D school. It's basically a design school, but it's the amalgamation of art and business and engineering, very whole-minded uh, because design has become so essential to business success. And how do you get better at design? One very cheap way is to keep a design notebook. And this is something that I have done and has really changed um, my ability to see the world. I mean, you, you know, you, you, you keep a notebook with you and write down instances of good design you see in your midst, instances of bad design you see in your midst. And the first thing that you notice is that everything in our world, everything... <laughs> That, that human beings create for other human beings in a marketplace is the product of a design decision. I mean, some inspired um, and some not. Um, and so, you know, I look around my office here where I'm talking to you, and, and you know, everything I see had a design decision behind it. I'm sitting, I happen to be sitting in an Aeron chair. That's a more inspired decision. 
But, you know, I look at the way that my office is configured and I made a design decision there and it's probably not that inspired of a design decision. You look at where do, what do I do with my books? How do I configure my books? How do I, what, you know, the bookcases that I have and how are they arranged? That's a design decision. You go into, um, uh, go to buy a cup of coffee, um, that interaction in buying a cup of coffee, there's a design decision there. And so I think that, you know, that's one very simple thing people can do to become more literate at these more right brain abilities. And it makes sense when you say it's it's how you look at the world. Like, I love good design, but I've never actually opened my eyes as much as you've just made me do it in the last 30 seconds of looking at a room and actually seeing those design decisions. Well, yeah, no, and everything, that's the thing. I mean, everything is, there's a design decision there. I mean, if you think about this, what you have done today, essentially everything that you have, you've touched, everything that you have seen, everything you have encountered is a, is, a, is a design decision. You know, I went for a run earlier this morning when I laced up my shoes to, to run. The shoes, those were a product of a design decision. Um, when last night when I drove to Virginia to do a, a event on the Johnny Bunko book, the car that I was in, I actually had a zip car. There's a, there's a design decision in the transaction that I had to do with Zipcar, some actually very elegant design decisions there. The car itself, there was a design decision in the car itself, less elegant design decision. When I drove from the District of Columbia, where I live, to Virginia for this event, the highway, there's a design decision there. I mean, you know, um, we're making design decisions every single day, and they have big consequences both in business and in terms of just sort of overall societal well-being. In your book, In a Whole New Mind, you actually talk about these six essentials in the business world, the first one being design. Can you very briefly touch on the other ones? Right. They are um, story, which is uh, in a world of ubiquitous facts. When facts are free, each individual one doesn't matter so much as being able to put them together, put them in context and deliver them with emotional impact. That's what a story does. You see story moving to a range of business functions. Symphony, which is essentially to put the pieces together, to see the big picture, to um, be able to cross boundaries. Um, it is in many ways the killer app. Uh, then there's empathy, which is the ability to see with someone's eyes, feel with someone's heart, listen with their ears, sort of it's a fundamentally human ability, but because it's hard to outsource and hard to automate, it ends up being enormously valuable in business today in things like sales, some aspects of leadership uh, in, in design. Uh, there's play, which is laughter, humor, and games. There's a lot of lessons in, in all those things. There are a lot of lessons that all those things yield for effective performance in a world where the routine abilities can be shipped overseas or reduced to lines of code in a computer program. And finally is meaning. Uh, in, especially in the advanced economies, people have been liberated by prosperity but not fulfilled by it. And so you have this widespread search for meaning and purpose, significance, not everybody, but deep into the middle class. And it is inevitably affecting uh, how we run our businesses. And it's affecting decisions that, that individuals make, both in terms of what they buy and also in terms of where they work. Can you put it in context with some businesses and business names that people know of companies that do follow these principles, and then also a company that didn't necessarily have these before, but was actually able to make that change. Yeah, I mean, I think that one example, a good, a good example of a company that it sort of satisfies both categories there is, um, is Procter & Gamble. Um, Procter & Gamble is, we all know what Procter & Gamble makes. I mean, it's soap and detergent and shampoo. For the president, chairman, and CEO of Procter & Gamble, A.G. Lafley, has said, at my company, these are his words, it's all design. 
And it seems sort of ludicrous when you think about it. Um, it's a shampoo company. And the reason he says that is that he recognizes, and these are, again, his words. I think he's a very smart CEO. He says that his company, like many companies today, stand on the edge of an abyss, an abyss that he calls, his words again, commodity hell. And in a world with so much stuff, in a world of such physical, material abundance, where in the U.S., for instance, you have more automobiles than you have licensed drivers, where you have 87% household cell phone penetration in a country with a 12% poverty rate. In Europe, you have over 100% cell phone, mobile phone penetration, so there's more than one mobile phone per person. In the United States, you have the self-storage industry, an industry devoted to excess, uh, as a $22.6 billion a year industry. Uh, he's recognizing that we're all on the brink of commodity hell, and so what he has done is he has hired designers, uh, he has put a premium on getting talented people who are multifunctional, putting them aside and saying, listen, you guys, we're going to leave you alone. I just want you to do great work, but your task is to iterate something new. And so they came up with a whole array of new products and services, like the Swiffer. And so Procter & Gamble is a very large company in a commodity business that is putting a premium on these sorts of things and, and, and flourishing. See the contrast to that with a company like, again, sticking on design a little bit, uh, a company like Dell. In the 1980s and 90s, Dell was an absolute darling of, of Wall Street. And Dell performed not only its stock, but its, its overall numbers beautifully well. I mean, it was an awesome company. It was a company that, 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 had, that had been celebrated. It's a very left-brain company. It was about process. It was about lean inventories. It was about you know, uh, you know, these just-in-time inventories, um, incredibly complex supply chains that worked like a dream. Uh, and they got really, really, really good at those. And then they hit a wall. In the wall was that PCs, which was the core of their business, became commodities. And Michael Dell had to come back to his company to try to rescue it. And now, again, I'm using his exact words. He says, today at Dell, we are in the fashion business, left brain to right brain, trying to make that kind of change. And I'm guessing that the stock market is rewarding right brain companies? Well, you think so. I mean, there's a good, I mean, again, I don't want to focus entirely on design here, but there's some really great research out of the Design Council in the UK that developed this portfolio of companies um, that, I don't, I don't remember exactly what the metric was, but it basically it was something along the lines of companies that were in the top uh, quintile or the top decile, top 10% of, uh, in terms of the metric, uh, how much they invested in design as a percentage of their, say, their revenue, some kind of metric like that, basically as a measure of design orientation. And over the last 15 years, that design portfolio has easily, out, I mean, easily outperformed the FTSE 100. Easily. I mean, I have the picture of the chart in my head, and it's it's like a it's like a a mouth that's yawning, um, uh, and so it shows you know some good payoff to to the bottom line. Or even if you see something like you know let's let's, let's go away from design for a second and look at a company like here in the U.S. a company called USAA. All right, USAA is an insurance company, a very very high performing. Uh, insurance company. Um, the reason, and now we think about insurance, okay? Insurance is a business that is a commodity product, okay? Insurance is a math problem. Commodity product with transparent pricing. That's a terrible business to be in if, when you think about it. It's not, a, it's not a business that, you know, you say, oh, what great opportunities there are in this commodity product with transparent pricing. 
Um, USAA performs at a very high level and consistently wins customer service awards. Why? Well, they go and interview. I didn't do this interview, but uh, at Business Week they did this interview with. They raced to the USAA's headquarters because USAA had won the Business Week Customer Service Champion Award two years in a row, um, beating out you know Four Seasons and Cadillac and those kinds of places. They go to the head of people services and she's and they say, "What are you doing? What's your secret sauce?" And, and she says, "Oh, we try to develop empathy." for our customers. And so, uh, so you know, a lot of these things have um, are beginning to show a very, very solid payoff on the bottom line, because I, I really think that in many cases, we've hit a ceiling on some of the other um, things that companies have done. Daniel, I want to switch you to your latest book, The Adventures of Johnny Bunko, The Last Career Guide You'll Ever Need. And here, too, you've got six lessons that I love. I'd love for you for you to just sort of take us through them. Okay, this is, a, this is, as you know, a different sort of book. This is a book, it's a 160-page graphic novel career guide. Um, it's a story. Uh, it's, it's written mostly for people, say, high school, college, maybe early in their careers. And it tells a story of a guy named Johnny Bunko, who works at a place called the Boggs Corporation. And uh, the book, Having a Dark Night of the Soul, he hates his job, uh, wondering how he got to where he is. He has to pull an all-nighter. He um, goes out for some food, gets some Japanese food and some chopsticks, breaks open the chopsticks, and there's a big explosion. And out of those chopsticks, which turn out to be magic chopsticks, uh, is a character named Diana, who is sort of a kick-butt career advisor, who begins to teach Johnny these six lessons about satisfying productive careers, the sorts of things that I wish I had known 25 years ago when I was just starting out. Uh, there are things like, just to go through them pretty quickly, uh, the first thing Johnny learns is that there is no plan, that actually planning one's career too intently is a huge mistake, and that it's very important to make career decisions uh, not for instrumental reasons, because you think something is going to lead to something else, but for fundamental reasons, because you actually want to do it, because it's inherently satisfying. Uh, and you know, the dirty little secret is that instrumental reasons simply don't work in a economy as tumultuous as ours. Second one, which you alluded to earlier, was to think strengths, not weaknesses, um, that, that people do a better job, people perform at a higher level when they focus on their strengths rather than try to repair their weaknesses. This is something that has come out in a lot of research from Gallup and the work of Martin Seligman in the positive psychology movement. The third lesson is, very important lesson, especially for Gen Y people, is it's not about you. Um, there are too many younger people, I think, who come into the workforce thinking that the, the company's existence is to help them self-actualize, uh, when in fact it's obviously not. And people who are too interdirected actually don't perform very well, and that the people who perform at the highest levels are people who are intensely focused on serving the customer, serving the client, helping their teammates perform at a higher level. And um, some of the most satisfying moments in life are when you help other people. Uh, the fourth one, is, which is a really important one, one of my favorites of the six, even though I love all my children, is persistence trumps talent. And that lesson is something, that, something else that I've seen, um, again, as a guy in his mid-40s, um, the world is littered with talented people who didn't persist. And a lot of the people who are really doing great things, a lot of the people who are really making an impact, a lot of the people who are really changing the world, who are really you know, building great businesses or, or, or achieving high levels as individual contributors are people who might be less inherently talented, but who were incredibly persistent. And so persistence trumps talent. 
there are massive returns to doggedness. The fifth lesson is to make excellent mistakes. Uh, there are, as Tom Peters says, too many mediocre successes, uh, not enough excellent mistakes. And I think that you know one of the big problems within organizations today is low aspirations, that people are too concerned about messing up, and so they don't try hard enough. They don't try big enough. Uh, and so they end up in this kind of failure-free zone, which ends up being basically a success-free zone as well. And finally, the sixth and last but not least is to leave an imprint. And by that, I mean the people who really do well are people who are thinking about what is their legacy going to be, uh, what can I do for the world, not necessarily fighting global terrorism or ending world hunger or solving global warming, um, but just, you know, doing something where you leave an imprint and that the world is better because of what you've done in some, even some small way, especially in some small way. And so these are the six kind of strategic lessons that I wish I had known 25 years ago when I was just starting out uh, and that I think are really the secrets to satisfying and productive careers. Daniel, if you were starting off and you had those lessons and you were now in the first 30 days of graduating and kind of pursuing your dream and looking for your dream job, with everything that you've just shared with us, what would you tell some of these graduates to actually do in the first week? What are, what are they doing? In the very first week, I would say this. First of all, get over the idea that you need an elaborate plan, that you need a 10-year plan. Just dismiss that right away. The second thing that I would have them do in that first week is do a personal inventory. What are you great at and what do you love to do? I think that's a very, very important first question. And then I think you know, maybe the second week, they start thinking about, okay, you know what you're great at, you know what you love to do. Now, that's not enough. What you have to be able to do is solve someone else's problem, solve some company's problem, and think about what are the companies or organizations that have these sorts of issues, have the kinds of problems that your talents can solve. And then, um, you know, make a list of those kinds of places. And then, you know, this is 101, uh, begin looking for uh, contacts, friends of friends, colleagues who might have an avenue to one of those places. Daniel, I read that you had no idea that Oprah was going to give out your book to the graduating class at Stanford. Is that true? Uh, I got a little bit of an inkling uh, a couple of days before, but it, was, it came as a total surprise. <laughs> I love it. So, Daniel, the way we end off all our interviews here at Change Nation is we ask all our guests the exact same three questions. Uh-oh. They're, they're quick and they are specifically focused on change. Here's the first one. What is the belief that you personally go to during times of change in your life? Um, it's not about me. Beautiful. Number two, fill in the sentence. The best thing about change is? The best thing about change is that um, it forces you uh, out of a rut and exposes you to um, ideas and opportunities that you didn't know you, you needed to be exposed to. Here's the last one. What is the best change that you've ever made? Quitting uh, regular employment and working for myself. <laughs> <laughs> Love that one. Daniel, thank you so much. Thanks for being on the show. Thanks for all your great tips, wisdom. We certainly appreciate it. My pleasure. To read more about Daniel Pink and his fascinating work, theories on change, and his books, please visit his website at www.danpink.com. That is D-A-N-P-I-N-K.com. For more information on career and work, finding your dream job, and other inspiring interviews with experts, please remember to visit us at first30days.com. Thank you for listening. Thanks for listening to Change Nation from first30days.com. 
Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on iTunes in the Society and Culture section under Philosophy. Remember to take time to leave us feedback about the show. We'd love to know what you think. Change Nation is a production of the first 30 days incorporated. Copyright 2008. All rights reserved. <laughs>